Hey guys, uh, before we get to the episode, just want to address something. Um, in here, we spend a while talking about the fact that Adam Cole has been the NXT champion for like over a year. And I think we say something like, well, it's clearly just going to go on forever. Well, it turns out that on the very night we recorded this, uh, he actually lost the title to Keith Lee. And of course, we weren't watching because we were busy doing this show, but just wanted to point out that we recorded this uh, before that had happened. Um Enjoy the show, everybody. Thanks for making us look like assholes, Adam. Adam Cole, baby. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, we're going back to cover NXT's shining moment. It's NXT TakeOver Brooklyn, and it's the one time everything was right with the world. Kyush, how much fun did you have revisiting this one? Just going back and revisiting myself from five years ago and how hopeful and how happy and how how full of joy to be able to watch and enjoy wrestling I was. A, a much younger Kyush, even though I was still in my 30s, a much younger Kyush really, really, really loved this show. More optimistic. Less oh, absolutely. Cynical. Just think of, like, the fuckery that's happened in the last five years. Maybe unprecedented in the history of professional wrestling. <laughs> in the history of the world. Year period, yeah. Um, Back then, we thought the future was amazing, and this yeah. was it. We were what the future was now. We were watching the future. We were watching what we had always wanted from WWE, weren't we? From wrestling in general, to be yeah. honest. WWE's production values, but the stars from the indies. Everything we had ever wanted. Yeah. Um, it's fitting that in Greek, nostalgia literally means the pain from an old wound. It's a place we long to go, but we never can. Like... This is that place we wish we could go and we'll never be able to. And there's a lot of wounds here, ladies and gentlemen. As we go through the show, it's going to be a whole lot of, man, remember how cool that seemed like it was going to be? Well, five years later, he's out of the business and everything sucks. (laughs) So many missed opportunities. Oh, just nothing but. Sad to see how many of these people, like none of these people ever got as over on the main roster as we expected them to. We're going to try not to turn this into an ultra-mega bummer, because that's not really the purpose of this podcast or of us talking about this show. And this is I, – I, I tend to think that Brooklyn 2 is the climax when it's like Nakamura and Joe and the revival and DIY. But it, there's a very compelling case to be made, and I know that you normally make it, that this is the climax yeah. of NXT. This is the moment that it was at its highest, and it only went down from here. And you feel that when you rewatch it. It feels special. Oh, it was. And I'm a little biased because I was actually at this show. I think this is the very first time we're reviewing a show that one of us was actually at. This is we have only cumulatively as a duo. I think we've only attended like four pay-per-views ever. Like, (laughs) it's real hard. Brooklyn one and Brooklyn three. And you were at All In, right? Yes. And I was at All In. And that's uh, I was at a Ring of Honor pay-per-view, too. And that that I think that's it. 
<laughs> I was go- I was gonna go to Vegas for uh, Double or Nothing or whatever the AEW show this year was gonna be, and then the fucking coronavirus came. Well, yeah, and, see, uh, here's the fun- that did not happen. Here's the funny thing: is that Law and I were both gonna go to Double or Nothing yeah. in Vegas, and not only were we both gonna watch that show, that was gonna be the first time we'd ever met in person. But hey, yeah. COVID's a fun something thing. Else, yeah, something else happened instead. Golly, it sure did. Fuck. <sighs> <sighs> anyway, this is when NXT really hit it big. Um, first time running a big venue, first takeover outside of Full Sail. Like, this is such a massive step up for this, like, show. What they've done. I mean, before this, they've toured a little bit, but it's just been, like, armories around Florida. Like, the total extent they'd gone on the road was basically nothing to this point. And now they're going to run the Barclays Center, which is, you know, an NBA arena with 18,000 seats or whatever. It's really difficult to really pro- properly like put into context the difference between a 400-seat television show arena and the 15,000. It's free. Like, yeah. you just, like, the students at Full Sail just get to go for free. And, like, literally selling out in arena. Like, legitimately. Like... And yeah. to the point where this was a bigger, buzzier thing than the SummerSlam that year, which I believe was Brock versus Undertaker. And it was a pretty hot SummerSlam, all things considered. Like, it's a notable one. But no, this was bigger. So yeah. this is, I mean, NXT went through some weird evolutions on the way. Like, it's always going to be strange to me that where NXT started 10 years ago now was as a game show that yes. replaced ECW where they brought in a bunch of, I mean, basically indie guys and had them compete to see who would get a spot on the main roster and a WWE title shot. I mean, you might remember this season had Daniel Bryan, Wade Barrett, Ryback, Heath Slater, Justin Gabriel. uh, Who are the other guys? Michael Tarver. And I um, don't remember who the other couple guys were. Darren Young. Did you say Darren Young? No, I didn't. Darren Young. Yeah. I think there was another guy, but I'm blanking on who it was. But a pretty good group of guys, if we're going through it. Like, a lot of success from that crew. And they did, what, three of those? It's very weird. They did... I think they did four, because I think they did an all-women's one. The the second one was the one that... um, That's the one low-key one. Yes, low-key won the second one, and then I think they did the all-women's one, and then they did one where they brought pe- like they brought back previous contestants, and that was the one that went on and on. It went on for, like, over a year with, like, no... That's when it had sort of, like, become a developmental show, but they didn't know what they were doing, so it just went on for, like, over a year, and, like, CM Punk was on commentary burying the world. Okay, yeah, so that's season five, because in between Fandango wins season four. Oh. And then they did Redemption with season five, and it went on so long that it never ended. Yeah. Like, we never got a winner. It was yeah, down it was to Darren dropped. Young, Titus O'Neil, and Derek Bateman, and they just never announced a winner. Wow, they didn't crown a winner out of that group. We really missed out on something, didn't we? Now, let me tell you this. Did you know that there was a season six that was supposed to happen, but it got canceled? Oh. I've never heard of this. Here's who was supposed to be in it. Big E Langston, Bo Dallas, Damian Sandow, Jinder Mahal, Hunico, Leo Kruger, Seth Rollins, and Xavier Woods. 
Shit. So basically, they were going to use the like what the core of what became the actual NXT roster. Yes. And what happened along the way is FCW closed down. Yeah. So they were like, well, shit. Why don't we just since this has been going forever anyway, why don't we just turn this into its own thing? Yeah. So this is when they open up the perform. You know, the, the performance center has been around for a little while at this point. But this is when they're like, let's do this right. Like, let's have our own school. Like. Let's build these guys from nothing and make them stars. And, like, their record on that front is hit and miss. Like, I feel like I've always been the guy who points out that most of what NXT has, you know, quote-unquote, like, developed are just finished. Like, guys who were 90% finished and they just gave them, like, the finishing touches. Like... Kevin Owens and Sami Zayn and Shinsuke Nakamura. Like, there's a lot fewer success stories of guys they took from scratch and built into stars, right? Yeah, there still are some, but it's some. definitely less. Um, pretty much it's mostly entire... like second generation. It's like Charlotte and like yeah Bray Wyatt and like second generation stars. Really, their women's division is what you could point yes. to mostly because those are all people. There was no women's division before NXT. NXT made that a thing. And there's always like your Enzo Amores. There's there's guys that they made who didn't necessarily succeed at the next level. But for the most part, yeah, NXT was never quite the bastion of churning out talent that like your OVW or even FCW were. Like most of the NXT talent that has gotten called up hasn't worked out for a variety of reasons. And that's a large part of why we are in WWE where we are right now is the future came and just didn't work out. Uh, they just kneecapped basically every single guy who got called up here. Yeah. So when that happens, I mean, what the fuck are you supposed to do? Five years on. All right. Now all the veterans are gone. Who's carrying the company? Oh, it's those NXT guys who never got over. Fuck. <sighs> so pop quiz. Who was the first NXT champion? Well, that was Mr. Seth Rollins. Yeah. That's a, I mean, a good one compared to Jinder Mahal, who he beat in the tournament final to win the title. Also, I was certain when I watched that, by the way, when NXT first started, let the, let me just be clear about this. There were only like five of us who were watching it. It was a rotten product. It was despicably bad. Most of the talent they have weren't even close to finished products. Seth Rollins was not Seth Rollins. Nothing even no. remotely like it. He sucked. Everybody hated Tyler Black. Yeah, he and was still Tyler Black. Now he's reverted back to being Tyler Black, right? Yeah, basically. That's God's last gift is basically what he's running now. I don't want to get into that. We said no, no bummer, Steve. <laughs> um, but yeah, basically that's what it was. Is that like... It was a very bad product. If you had ever watched FCW itself, which was a place that was good for development, but very, very bad to watch as an actual wrestling show, this was a lot like that in the beginning. Um, so just, I mean, just a couple of months after Rollins wins the NXT title, him and Reigns and Ambrose get the call and they bring him up to the main roster as the Shield. So that's a pretty strong debut for NXT. I also believe that summer they had been building a Dean Ambrose-Mick Foley program that didn't end up happening because Foley couldn't get cleared to wrestle. Yes, Foley tried desperately to get cleared to wrestle, and they shot a bunch of backstage kind of stuff. Like That, that was actually a really interesting thing, because there was no clear idea of what NXT was at the time, like what... 
kind of vision it was going to have for its future, how they were going to portray storylines and stuff like that. So Moxley took it upon himself to literally like follow Mick Foley around with a camera and be like, look at this fat motherfucker. I'm going to kick his ass. Yeah. So it kind of, I mean, it just kind of bops along for a year and a half. The first time it really did something big. And I think the first show I remember watching was they were the first live broadcast on WWE network, just like a few days after the network launched they did their big show called NXT Arrival. And like, really the whole point of this was just that they wanted to test the capability of the network to do a live broadcast because they didn't want the first time they did a live show to be WrestleMania. So they did this much smaller scale, lower stakes NXT show. And I think there were some technical hiccups with the broadcast, but overall it was a success. And it must be said, too, that NXT had a lot of lucky breaks along the way. A lot of times where they really needed, like, a dramatically great performance in, like, a very important spot, and they got it. Like, for example, for most people, the first seconds of NXT they ever saw was Cesaro versus Sami Zayn, which is an unbelievably great match. That's the very first match on Arrival. Oh, yeah. It kicks ass. And so if if that's your first impression, you're going to stick with it and stay interested, right? And that's basically what happens. Um, Main event that night, Adrian Neville beat Bo Dallas in a ladder match to win the NXT championship. Part of the reason it was so hard to enjoy NXT early on was Bo Dallas. Holy shit. That they was the went, NXT champion. They went whole hog on Bo Dallas. Was Dusty Rhodes a big Bo Dallas guy? Yes, he was. Yeah. Dusty Rhodes is largely responsible for Bo Dallas, but also he's pretty much responsible for Bray Wyatt, too, because yeah. those were Mike Rotunda's kids and he wanted to take care of them. So yeah. he worked personally with both of them. You know, one for two is not a bad batting rate here in wrestling. Yeah, and if you're talking about gimmicks, like... If you really think about it, Bray Wyatt has Dusty Rhodes all over it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, a couple months later, they ran another special called NXT TakeOver, and that branding, of course, stuck, and now they've done, I don't know, 30 of them. I don't remember what they're up to. It's a lot. It's yeah. a whole, whole bunch. Yeah, I mean, they, they were quarterly, and now they, they were getting to the point where they were just about every other month. But pretty good discipline they showed to not do the monthly. I mean, this is where they've settled into their groove of, like, they've got their one-hour TV show, and their one hour of TV is just old-school wrestling TV. It's squash matches and promos. And then they do their big show every couple months. Like, very conservative, traditional wrestling booking. I've always thought that one of the biggest indictments of the way WWE's done modernly their television is NXT, which literally their television is some of the most boring shit in the entire world. But the only thing it's designed to do is build to the part that you pay for. So like you, you watch these like boring squash matches and you boring promos and it's like, okay, okay, okay. But after like eight weeks of it, you get to take over and suddenly everything is a hot storyline. Yeah. And that's what it's meant to be. <laughs> Everyone's yeah. over. Everyone in the whole company is over. Because yeah. that's all it is, is a mechanism to get people over. And you shoot, like, one angle a week. Yep. And each angle is big because of that, because you don't have an angle in every single match. 
And the and show's then, only an hour, so you're not yeah. spending forever with it. You don't see everybody every single week. Maybe you get a quick little promo from somebody one week, but yeah, Kevin Owens and all the other stars are not having to have a match every single week on the show, so they're not getting overexposed. And that means basically every match you put on is fresh. Like, you're never beating any match into the ground. Like, the idea, you could do, I think the closest to beating anything into the ground they came in the early years was, like, Joe and Nakamura, who wrestled, like, five pay-per-views in a row. But people didn't get sick of it, because they almost never interacted in the meanwhile. Um, And it just starts growing and growing, and then they just start signing up, like, talent from everybody the indies and from japan's they sign kevin steen they sign prince devitt they sign el generico they sign samoa joe they sign kenta that was the one that like blew my mind when it happened as a japanese wrestling fan wwe had in my lifetime shown almost no interest in japanese wrestling it just nobody Nobody from there ever came here. Certainly yeah. nobody who was actually a big the, name. The guys they brought in were like Taka Mishinoku and Kenzo Suzuki. They were not big Japanese stars. At the time he came over, Kenta was literally the world champion of pro wrestling Noah. And it was like a gigantic news story in Japan and in the States. The they moment he showed press up. press conference, and I think they had Hogan at it, if I'm remembering this right. It was a gigantic moment. It was... In theory, just as big a moment as getting Sin Cara was. <laughs> and it ended up being just as big a debacle. Yes. Not, for ver- not for ver- quite. Kenta, for very different reasons. They didn't like, he didn't get embarrassed. He just had injuries. Like he yeah, just he had injuries. He had trouble adapting to the style. Like, it, that, that'll happen. Like, that's not Kenta's fault. It's not WWE's fault. But that laid the groundwork for the New Japan raid afterwards because they got so much positive press. And then on comes your Nakamura's, on comes your La Sombra's. Like, I've never seen WWE look outside and suddenly understand what the rest of the wrestling world was about. And a large part of that is because they take veteran wrestlers and just send them to all corners of the globe looking for the best wrestlers. It's yeah. this whole initiative Triple H does. It's the members of the clique. It's like Waltman and Nash and Hall like just get sent everywhere. Regal gets sent to like pro wrestling guerrilla shows. Like suddenly WWE actually knows who these people are. So I'm trying to think of what really puts NXT on. I mean, I think what really put NXT on the map for the main roster WWE fans had to be when Samoa or when Kevin Owens showed up on raw with the nxt title kicked off a feud with john cena and then beat him at that elimination chamber show we did uh back in may like that feels like it was the real like turning point for like this is a this roster like this show this brand is on par with raw and smackdown yeah up until that moment it been kind of bubbling under the surface uh, i think sammy had a match with cena earlier in that year and like people were like oh man that was pretty interesting like it's something that people like knew the name of, but didn't weren't like really paying attention to until the moment where Kevin Owens like threw down the U.S. title and held up yeah. the NXT belt, and suddenly like, oh, that's a thing. Okay. You know, when we started to hear the rumors that they were going to run a show up in New York, SummerSlam weekend, I think we were figuring they would run like the Manhattan Center or like the theater at Madison Square Garden. 
Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, that's again, they hadn't run a venue that was really bigger than 400 people, at least not for a televised product. Yeah, the only thing I can think of is they, they did a house show WrestleMania weekend this year. And I think they did, they probably did 5000 people or something like that. And I think like a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar gate because the um, tickets were pretty expensive. That was the one that like. They ran over time, and I think Vince, like, paid out of his own pocket to keep the show running. That's interesting. That was a fun thing. It was probably, Vince was enjoying himself. It's probably the first NXT show he had ever seen. And we haven't, we've gone this far. I'm only far half with, kidding when I say that. We've gone this far without saying the words Triple H yet. Yeah, I mean, we should point out, a lot of the, this becomes, this becomes the training ground for Triple H for him to learn how to run a wrestling company so that he can take over for Vince. Like, there's a very clear point. In the beginning, this is a Dusty Rhodes operation. Yeah. They shut down FCW, and when they open NXT, they basically just give it back to Dusty and have him run it just like he was running FCW, basically, just with the Performance Center. There's a dis- definitive moment, and I'm not exactly sure when that is, that Triple H is sent down to be like, go learn everything you need to know about how to run a wrestling product from top to bottom. I want you involved in every aspect of everything. I want you involved in the music and the camera work and the, the performance center, everything. I want you to treat it like it's your own wrestling company, just like Vince's dad had done when he sent him down to DC all those years before. <laughs> Prove yeah. to me you more, can run a more glamorous to be running this instead of the fucking Cape Cod Coliseum or whatever. Yes. But, like, that's the idea, right? It's like, prove yeah. you can do it before I even think about handing you the reins. And, like, Triple H begins to shape it in his image in a very real way. And it's a very positive way. And most of what ha- – like, it, it's hard to pull aside the fact that a lot of these become failures later on because the difference between what Triple H thinks a wrestling promotion should be and what Vince thinks it should be is, like, a gulf the size of the ocean. I mean – this is where you get into what did Triple H grow up watching? Jim Crockett promotions. And that is the image that NXT yes. is built in. That is why AEW versus NXT feels like a real wrestling war, because they're both trying to make WCW. Yeah. Same thing Cody grew up watching. <laughs> yeah, it's Cody versus Triple H. That's what that is. Meanwhile, Vince is doing his own thing that nobody wants to watch. So, yeah. And then we found out they were running the Barclays Center. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. There's no way they're going to sell that out. Like, that would be nuts. They sold, they sold it out. I was there. It was so, packed to the rafters. So when you were going to buy tickets, were you like, oh, I should probably hurry up and get these? Or like, how, did, I, how was I the ticket buying? I, I scalped. I got it very late. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm not I bought, I, bought my t- I bought my tickets like monday before the show like it hadn't even crossed my mind to go and then i'm like hey that would be fun i do wonder how much of it was similar to all in where like scalpers bought a shitload of tickets and then successfully unloaded them because of the interest probably i mean i could imagine that but i going into the show like i was already an ardent nxt viewer i was watching the show every week and stuff like that it wasn't something like it there wasn't any sort of buzz about NXT really like there was a little bit, but like if you went on like message boards and stuff like the NXT thread wasn't exactly hopping from week to week. You know what I mean? Before this show, it just wasn't something that was in everybody's vocabulary. 
the only uh, after the Kevin Owens thing, the only other exposure they'd really gotten was Balor beat Owens for the title um, on that Beast in the East show in Japan, which was an outrageously fun show that we should probably do sometime. Yeah, one of the weirdest shows that like you can ever imagine anyone pitching to Vince. It's like, hey, let's go to Japan and then put a developmental guy who used to wrestle in Japan on the top of the card. And him being like, yeah, all right, that's fine. It's like, oh, hey, Brock's going to take a vacation to Japan and he wants us to pay him to have a match. Uh, should we do something with that? He's like, yeah, sure, let's do that. But let's not put Brock in the main event. Let's put the developmental match in the main event. <laughs> Yeah, um, that was great. <laughs> the moment where they bring the flowers in and Owens throws the flowers into the crowd is so great. It's so great. Kevin Owens, I mean, he's still good, but like this Kevin Owens was incredible. Like what a great character he was. Just the most disrespectful piece of shit. Just sick and shit prize fighter. Like he'll fight you for money and otherwise he's not doing anything. I love the idea of that character so much. Yeah. You know, he doesn't do this for fun. He does this to provide for his wife and his son. He loves his family. He's a good man. And he'll do anything to protect them and make sure they have a good life. I've always loved that that's the through line of his whole WWE career is he'll betray you. He's not your friend. He's got enough friends. He's got a family. He doesn't give a shit about you. No. This is not his whole world. His world is back home where he wants to be. But to be able to be there and put a good roof over their heads, he has to come do this show. And that's why he's so unpleasant all the time. And what a despicable heel it makes him that he's not totally invested in this 24-7. Yeah. It's the worst thing you can be. Not a mark. Certainly in Vince's eyes. Um, so on this night, it's going to be a double main event with Finn Balor defending the NXT title against Kevin Owens in a ladder match and Sasha Banks defending the NXT Women's Championship against Bailey in the match that we know will steal the show. Um, Sasha has already debuted on the main roster. I guess that's the other exposure NXT has gotten is they called up basically the entire NXT women's division and gave them that huge debut with Stephanie that... Everybody complained about, but I think was a pretty great way to debut them and make it a big deal. I can understand the people who are frustrated that it seemed like Stephanie was personally taking credit for the women's division that has suddenly cropped up, which is frankly ridiculous. And like them taking credit for WWE creating this women's division when fucking Shimmer built this from you built this from scratch over 10 years and handed it to you on a fucking platter. But okay, I'm not going to get who, mad. Who about deserves that. to get shouted out? As who, was it Sarah Del Rey who was working with all of them at this point? Uh, Dave Prezak and Allison Danger were the booker and promoter. But like, yeah, cheerleader Melissa, Sarah Del Rey, uh, Becky Lynch herself. And then NXT were, hired Sarah Del Rey. Yeah, Sarah bringing in Sarah Del Rey to personally work yeah. and help develop these women is the number one thing that creates the women's revolution single-handedly sarah del rey deserves to be in the wwe hall of fame there's just straight up and she's still there doing it right now that's why there has been absolutely no like they're not tranking out stars quite like the four horse women but like if you look at the show now all the top talent are the women that has never stopped since she got there she's turning random ass people managers models anything into like amazing talent so the, yeah they brought up becky lynch and charlotte and teamed them with Paige in what they initially dubbed 
the submission sorority until Which... someone Googled that and found out it was a <laughs> adult website. But Do you think they Googled no it or do you think like Jim Cornette called up and was like, hey guys, uh, <laughs> I'm really into that submission sorority. So then it became Team PCB. God, these stables were awful. I mean, that's the misfire is like, and then they bring in Sasha too. And they're like, oh, well, let's put her with like the only non-white women we have. And they'll yeah, just let's be make a black people stable. Yeah. And we'll call it Team Bad. That's good. Dangerous or deadly. I don't remember what the D stands for. Yeah. It was it's not good. It's such a weird idea that not only did Stephanie McMahon come out on television and say, all right, we're going to start caring about women's wrestling now. And also, I'm just going to announce what stables everyone is in. (laughs) Oh, okay. These people who have no association with each other are going to be together. You've just never seen WWE so literally go out on television and be like, these are the people you need to care about. Don't worry about anybody else. These people. I mean, they got huge reactions, especially Charlotte. Yes. There had been a hunger for women's wrestling growing under the surface for years. This is the year we had the give divas a chance thing. Like, it had been building to this, and it was big when they brought them all out at once. Yes. The full-on martyrdom of the Bellas and Paige and AJ and Caitlin for, like, the previous four years is heroic to be if perfectly they deserve honest. credit like the bellas have never got i mean everybody hated the bellas but like they were something they were competent wrestlers who got heat and like carried this division for years them creating total divas to keep that division yeah. relevant is the only thing that kept it from being dismissed completely like, there wouldn't be women's wrestling still, probably, if not for Total Divas. How many wrestling fans did Total Divas create? So many. They're, I think to this day, I think at this moment right now, it's like on par with Raw in viewership. <laughs> now that Raw has sunk so much, I think there's roughly as many people watching Total Divas as Raw. Yeah, the people watching Total Divas were not the people who were watching wrestling before. Or if they were, it was the people who wrestling wasn't aiming itself at. Like young women and older gays and like just that E demographic that WWE had never even put, remotely tried to take any advantage of. And like, thank God. And what that created was just like a whole, there was a thirst from those people like, well, let's watch them wrestle then. Like, that would be fun. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, a great time for NXT. And, like, it's already, I feel, oh, it already feels fleeting because, like, we know this is going to be it for Owens. Like, he's been doing double duty all summer and, like, he's not going to be able to keep doing that. So, he's going to be just on the main roster after this. And Charlotte's gone. She's not on this show. Becky wrestled on the, like, she had a match that she taped uh, for the next NXT before this, but Becky. Is going to be gone. Sasha's going to stick around to wrap up her feud with Bailey, but she's out of there too. So, like, their roster is already getting raided. Now, it's going to turn out they're going to be able to produce another generation of stars because they've already signed Samoa Joe and Bobby Roode is coming and Nakamura is coming. So, like, they're going to be able to put together the pieces and they end up putting Sami Zayn back in NXT because. He got hurt, and it wasn't the right time for him to debut on the main roster. So they're going to be able to keep this going for a little while longer after this. Yeah. 
And there maybe like four or five times in NXT history to this point where they've done this, where they've just been like, all right, this is the climax of this generation, and we're just going to have to completely rebuild from scratch. Twice they've succeeded, and twice they've failed horribly. Um, that sucks. But you we're really feel like... Currently is- watching one of the times it's failed, as Adam Cole has been the NXT champion for over a year, and I don't think anyone cares. At this point, it's been 402 days. That's 109 days more than the second longest NXT title reign. So there's that. <laughs> but yeah, Adam but, Cole, baby. But this is the point, the first time that we really knew that that was coming. Like, okay, everybody's getting caught up. All the women are leaving. It definitely feels like Finn's not going to be around much longer. It feels like, all right, the VOD villains winning the title was sort of the end of that generation of the tag division. And then, like, new tag teams start pouring in, like, right, literally the next month. Where, like, the Authors of Pain start coming in and yeah. TM61 and all this other stuff. DIY so like, start getting pushed. Yeah, it's like a whole new generation's about to begin. So this really feels special. It's like a... It's like one last send-off to the people who built NXT, who made it what it is now, before they all go off to grand happiness and splendor on the main roster. All right. I love the opening to this show. It's brilliant. We open, and it's pitch black in the arena. Triple H stands alone in the ring in the darkness. He does a little speech about how, like, this started as a dream and it became a movement and now it's a reality, blah, blah, blah. And he talks for a little bit and then he brings the light up to reveal the massive sellout crowd, which proceeds to go absolutely crazy after they had done a pretty good job staying quiet during his initial speech. There was one asshole who started chanting for Chris Benoit and I hope everybody beat him up. Yeah, you can definitely hear him start chanting it, and you can also hear him abruptly stop. So I hope somebody tackled him. Like, just imagine that you're like, oh, I'm going to ruin this moment by chanting the name of a child murderer. Yeah, that sounds like a wrestling fan to me, Steve. Just pathological. This is is such a beautiful moment. Because while I knew that they were in the Barclays Center, and I, I had a vague sense that they had, like, sold a bunch of tickets... Until you get that moment where the lights come up and they have a full Barclays Center, you don't have any context for what's about to happen. Like it's stunning. Yeah. I still like I relived it as I was watching this. Like I can't believe that that happened. Yeah, I just it's a per- perfect way to start the show. Like, is it maybe a little narcissistic that it's Triple H doing this? Yeah, but I think he'd earned it. And this is the funny thing is like NXT so revived Triple H's image. Yeah. Again, this product is aimed at exactly the fans who spent most of their adolescence hating Triple H with every fiber of their rational being. But like by this point, you just you know that it's him personally delivering it to you. Everything that you're watching, all the talent that has been scouted and brought in was under Triple H's heading specifically to give to you like. I don't think that Vince it ever felt as personally that like Vince was delivering WWE to you as it did with Triple H in this. The corollary is actually between like Paul Heyman and ECW, right? Yeah. I mean, that's always what NXT has reminded me the most of is just like the brand is the real star. People do people chant NXT. 
Oh yeah, big time. Yeah. In fact, that started happening at shows. Like it's like whenever anybody from NXT would come out, people would just start chanting NXT. <laughs> Then we go to the intro package, and then we've got the opening match. Um, I guess I forgot to do my thing I always do, where I say, you know, to get into the show, it's uh, Saturday, <laughs> August 22nd, 2015. We're at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn, New York. Sellout crowd of 15,589 on hand. Um, show doesn't do a buy rate because it's not on pay-per-view. It's a WWE Network exclusive. And on commentary is the team of Rich Brennan, Byron Saxton, and Corey Graves. I thought they were fine. I also didn't really realize Rich Brennan was on commentary because I think I just thought him and Byron were the same person. Yeah, to pull the curtain back a little bit, um, <laughs> we were talking about who the announcers were on this show. And I t- said, like, yeah, there was Graves and there was uh, Byron. And then there was that third guy. And Steve literally said, wait, there was a third guy? <laughs> so he didn't do great. <laughs> There's a reason he wasn't around much longer after this. Yeah, it's a fine team. Corey Graves isn't quite who he'd be like a year from now. Byron Do you Sachs. mean that in a good way or a bad way? Because I feel like he's gotten much more annoying as the years have gone on. There was a moment, and it's you'd probably write about a year from now when it's just Phillips and him, where yeah. he's probably the best color commentator they've had since the 90s. And then that very quickly goes away. I think he just became the voice of Vince once he got called up. And that's why Vince loves him, because he just says what Vince tells him to. Exactly. So that's what that is. But there was a moment where he was himself and we just hadn't seen anyone be that natural on commentary in a very long time that he's not there yet byron is the the jonathan coachman of our new generation i guess in that he just never seems to click with any team he's better than coach was but he's not great he's not yeah he's not an awful commentator but he's very replacement level like I, you can't, I can't remember anything memorable he's ever said. Good or nev- bad. You could never have a two-man announce team and Byron be one of those two people because no. it would just be too boring. Yeah. I mean, that just is what it is. God. I, sometime, somewhere around this time, they had a four-man commentary team on SmackDown. That was an abomination. And like it was, and you would think that it would be so much people talking over each other, but actually, people had so little to say yeah. that it felt like it was like a two-man announce team with just four assholes sitting out there. Opening match. How the hell did this happen? It's Jushin Liger versus Tyler Breeze. Jushin Thunder Liger, baby. Here's the best, the single best thing about Jushin Thunder Liger is at this point he had literally reached a point in his career where he could just do whatever the fuck he wanted. Like, literally, like, he told New Japan he wanted to do this, and WWE formally approached them. This was immediately before WWE raided all of their (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, they let the the rooster in the hen house, and look what happened. But literally, WWE came to them, and Liger's like, I want to do it. And New Japan was like, you're fucking Justin Liger. Do whatever you want, bro. And that's literally all this is. They didn't demand that Liger win this match. They didn't make any demands about how he was treated or how he was promoted, except for the fact that he had to be Justin Thunder Liger instead of Justin Liger, as he was on all international tours. But that was it. Like, literally, this is not New Japan's Justin Liger. This is just Justin Liger on his own. 
So he starts by mocking Breeze's pose where he lays in the corner. That was hilarious. What a god. I love him. Uh, locks him in a surfboard stretch, takes a picture of himself with Breeze's selfie stick. What do you think of Tyler Breeze? I thought this guy had some talent, and this gimmick was just a little too much. The fabulous thing about Tyler Breeze is that when he first debuted in the early, in, I think he was in FCW, but it may have just been in the early days of NXT, he was a Lance Storm clone. He, he no literally, personality at all? He, no, he was trained by Lance Storm, uh, and he performed all his moves dressed like and as Lance Storm. <laughs> what a boring thing to cosplay as. Yes. So when he became this, I was like, oh, man, he found some personality. I think with him, he never really – he was good in the ring, but he never really found his personality in the ring. That's like, my thing is the way he wrestled didn't fit his character at all. Yes, he wrestled a really like I thought he, he an impressively like vicious physical style, but it did like there was nothing like it, sh- he, it seemed like he should have wrestled really flashy because of he has this narcissistic pretty boy character. Yes, he was basically turned himself into like another Dolph Ziggler, but that didn't really work. Especially his character was like super lazy and vain. Like it just didn't make sense that he would get like down and dirty with submissions and shit. Like he never found that identity. He laid his gimmick over the top of what was already there and that that winds up coming to sabotage a lot of guys to be honest uh breeze scores with a roundhouse kick the announcers make mention of the fact that breeze is one in three at takeover events that's a bit of commentary i really enjoy yeah poor breeze just all doomed to lose uh the crowd chants full sale sucks Oh, that's um, what they were chanting. Yeah. That's right. Okay. So this was the first takeover outside of Full Sail, and the Full Sail fans were rather salty about that, and they would boo every time uh, Brooklyn was advertised on the shows down there. Because it's not like a lot of people were going from Florida, where the tickets were free, up to Brooklyn to pay for the show. So this was not necessarily the normal NXT crowd. <laughs> Uh, Liger comes off the top for a splash, but Breeze gets his knees up. Liger fires up. He hits a palm strike. Uh, Breeze bails out to the floor, and Liger hits a somersault planche off the apron. Liger then hits the Liger bomb and gets the pin. Fun opening match. Really enjoyed that. Yeah, absolutely loved it. This this is about as lazy as I've ever seen Justin Liger wrestle in a match. This... NXT winds up being a really good venue because a lot of people wanted to wrestle just like one match in WWE just to see what it was like. And that's really what Liger wanted is that he had wrestled literally in every other significant promotion of any size that had ever existed before he hung it up. He just wanted to wrestle here one time and he got to do it. Yeah. There's some, I mean, like uh, not as like notable, but like Jericho went down there and did a match. I think RVD went down there for a match. Like there was a decent amount of that where guys from the main roster, like, Clearly volunteered themselves to go work with the young guys. Because it looked like fun. Yeah. And like it's you can't overestimate how much guys, especially once they've been around forever, just want to do something that feels different. That's basically Jericho's whole career is he just gets bored every three years and just goes to whatever's hot. Uh, We cut to the front row and see that Kevin Nash, Scott Hall and X-Pac are sitting there. These crowd cutaways are like... I just it's hard to even explain it because it's the simplest thing, but something about this makes these shows feel so cool. 
Yeah, just like, and they do this at like UFC shows and stuff too, but not quite like this. But basically, just like, hey, look at this cool person who's in attendance. Doesn't that make you feel cool about watching this? Yeah, and they do a good mix of legends, but also like new stars who are coming to NXT. There's a moment later in this show where not even Asuka yet, Kana is sitting next to Ric Flair. And I'm like, my brain exploded. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think this is how Lashley came back, was he sitting in the front row at, um, like it would have been New Orleans a couple years ago. And here's the best part about these, is that like you smuggle the person in, like they sit down in the chair, you immediately put them on camera, nobody knows that they're there, and then they can just leave. Like you don't even need to do that much. But like you get like, with the money you would have spent with, like, a debut package of, like, this person's coming, you don't even have to. Just show them in the crowd. The crowd goes wild every time. Because you fill in the blanks, right? Like, you see yeah. Bobby Roode in the crowd, and you're like, oh, shit, he's coming. Who is he going to feud with? This guy? This guy? What's his character going to be? Like, you do all the work for them. It's amazing. A quick shot of Bailey backstage getting dressed for a match, and she gets some words of encouragement from Becky and Charlotte. Then a video package for Nia Jax, who is coming to the main, coming to NXT. And next up, we've got a match for the NXT tag titles as Blake and Murphy defend against the Vaude Villains. Um, Vaude Villains out first. Uh, this was a very weird gimmick. I kind of liked it. But there was no way this was ever going to work on the main roster. No, I, I love it, and it's. But yeah, it's for sure one of those gimmicks that's meant yeah. for like a smaller level thing. What is I, this gimmick? Are they like hipsters or are they crazy? Originally, they were supposed to be time travelers. Oh, Christ. They were supposed to actually be from the 1920s or whatever. Then they were just hipsters who really loved that time period. Then you- it was never explained after that. Do you remember a hilarious segment where the New Day was feuding with them and they went back in time and, like, Kofi became Jamaican again for a second? I don't, but that sounds so good, and I'm going to look it up on YouTube as soon as we're done here. <laughs> that happened at another show. I, that happened at a Raw I was at. We're just really really playing the hits, the best things I was there for today. Here's the thing. Tag team wrestling in NXT was not originally one of its primary things. To a large, like, let me tell you the first couple of NXT tag team <sighs> champions: Adrian Neville and Oliver Gray. The Who's Wyatt. Oliver Gray. Oliver Gray is Joel Redman. He was a UK wrestler who they cut soon after that. Yeah, the Wyatt family. Okay. That's Adrian good. Neville and Corey Graves. Hmm, that's an interesting duo. The Ascension. Oh. Ooh. The Lucha Dragons. Oh. And okay. then Blake and Murphy, who had no characters. These guys have the strongest, like, WCW Saturday night energy to them. This is 100% Robbie Rage and what's-his-name. <laughs> Kenny Chaos. Yeah, like, they come out and you're like... Oh, yeah, I can totally see these jabronis getting squashed by the four horsemen. And, like, but they're actually trying. They have, like, an EDM entrance. But the thing that they really have. they got Alexa Bliss managing them. They have Alexa Bliss, who started mostly as a manager. She wasn't supposed to really be in the ring all that much. She got trained basically from scratch. 
And they put her in the ring a lot before she was ready. <laughs> a lot before. Because she was the only person in the division who could cut a promo. Yeah. I mean, she's so thoroughly the star of the crew here. Oh, it's a joke. Like, it doesn't even... She's even the crux of all of the heat in this match. But yeah, yeah the, but she's not the star of this match. Because you know who is? Blue Pants! Blue Pants! Does anyone remember Blue Pants? Blue Pants is one of these weird stories. So, basically, in the early days of NXT, they didn't have money to, like, fly people in. So, if you were just going to do a job on an NXT taping, you were going to be somebody who lived in, like, North Florida. It's old school. Yeah, so just, like, whoever happened to be wrestling around then. So, Leva Bates, who literally works at Universal Studios as a stuntman in her off time, uh, literally would just come in and do jobs, like, every couple of weeks. And she would always wear, like, a Wolverine costume, because she did cosplay all the time. And she just got, like, inexplicably over Yeah. with this crowd. And they just referred to her as Blue Pants because I guess she didn't want her Leva Bates name known as being attached to doing all these jobs is what I would assume. Yeah, she wore Blue Pants one time. And it just became a thing among that crowd. The crowd spends the entire match chanting Blue Pants City and Blue Pants Rocks to the New Day, like, chant tune. She had been gone for months before this. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, she... Never like I think she wrestles Alexa Bliss after this and is gone again. Did she get heat because she got so over? I think partially, yeah. She never gets signed to a deal at all. No, which is insane. She gets like one of the biggest pops on this entire show. But yeah, no, she was just a local development talent. Like she wasn't even a development talent. She was just a local job talent. She was like tag team champions in Shimmer. Like she had nothing to do with this. And now she's a librarian in AEW. Yeah, she sure is, buddy. <laughs> I have a lot of weird stories about Leva Bates, but we're not going to go into that here. But anyway, the point is is that after the VOD villains win these titles here, let me list the next tag teams. The Revival, American Alpha, The Revival Again, DIY, The Authors of Pain, Sanity, The Undisputed Era. Like, it, tag team wrestling becomes what this company is about for like two years. And that yeah. doesn't start until The Revival comes in, really. Like... This is a total afterthought on this show. Um, I do like that the VOD villains work like a weird, like old style strongman wrestling style. It's the only way you're going to get this gimmick over. Despite the fact that Aiden English is the one who sticks around, and I guess I can get why, I was really impressed by Simon Gotch in this match because yeah. he is in character. Yeah. everything he does, every movement he makes. He's even, like, bouncing off the ropes like the old-time wrestlers would do. It's impressive. Clearly watched a lot of tape. Just so committed. It, it was, it's awesome to see that they're, like, really going for it. Um, English gets tripped as he's going for a springboard, and he wipes out. He gets worked over. English throws Blake to the floor with a leverage move. He goes to make the tag, but uh, Blake yanks Gotch off the apron. I really liked that. Yeah, that was very cool. Uh, Blake and Murphy hit heads. English manages to dive across the ring to make the hot tag. The villains set up for something that looks like a finisher, but English gets crotched on the top rope. There's then a double Tower of Doom spot as both Blake and Murphy on both Blake and Murphy, and then a Swanton bomb from English. Blake just barely kicks out. Alexa tries to make the distraction, but Blue Blue Pants prevents it. 
blue blue pants with a slap and a double leg takedown. Murphy gets caught with a swinging neck breaker, and the Vaudevillains get the pin. Pretty good match. Big pop for the title change. You, know, you can't go wrong giving the crowd what they want. Yeah, I, and especially the crowd did not give a shit about Blake and Murphy, but they did I like the Vaudevillains. I yeah. mean, yeah. I mean, ironically, uh, Blake Murphy, who got that name because they just combined him after they released the one guy. <laughs> <laughs> or Buddy Murphy, I'm sorry. Buddy, Buddy Mur- Murphy. I was going to say, I don't think his name. Now he's just Murphy, right? Yeah. Uh, is still on the main roster and is doing very well. And Wesley Blake uh, is a member of the Forgotten Sons, which is a very literal name. Yeah. And yeah, yeah so they're, they're where they are. Cleaned, cleaned out this spring with the rest of the roster. Yeah, Aiden English is gone now. And uh, don't know what became of Simon Gotch. Well, Simon Gotch would eventually go on to YouTube stardom as the person in that impossibly often recommended YouTube video where he shoots on uh, Enzo Amore. Oh. I have no idea what else he's doing. Yeah. Um, we go to footage from earlier today and see Neville and Finn Balor arriving at the building. Uh, Cesaro greets them in the parking lot. They also also love these arrival shots. Like something about this is super cool. They they basically do all the things that we always wanted them to do with backstage segments. They keep them short. They show like these people just being real people. Yeah. You know what I mean? They walk to the ring. They're they're walking in. They're just Not backstage long talking. skits with a bunch of dialogue. It's just like. Here's him coming to the arena and like, you know, shaking hands with somebody. Here's Bailey stretching to get ready for her big ass match. Like that's all you need. That's literally all you need to build these characters. It's just like, fuck yeah, I forgot that Finn Balor's wrestling tonight. Kick ass. Look at him looking all cool. Uh, we see that Rick Rubin is sitting at ringside. Legendarily big wrestling fan, the man who helped bankroll Smoky Mountain Wrestling. My favorite thing about Rick Rubin is all the other people they just bring in for like that quick shot and then they like walk to the back. No, Rick Rubin's <laughs> just actually sitting in the front row. The He's entire night you can just night. see him right behind the announcers. Dude loves wrestling. Dude just showed up to watch the show. Next up, we've got Apollo Crews making his NXT debut against the Perfect Ten, Ty Dillinger. At least Dillinger is a heel here. I fucking hate this gimmick. They're... God. There were various moments where I was charmed by the Perfect Ten thing, but I was wrong to be. And I just need everyone to know that I own that about this myself. This ruined shows for like a year where we had to listen to the crowd chant Ten over and over and over. This was the new what gimmick. Oh. And like, and like, it was all building to his entrance in the Royal Rumble. And then they fucked it up. Oh. And I'll never forgive them for that. <laughs> This whole character was built up just for that moment where he yeah. comes out at number 10. And literally, his the beginning of his music is 10, and then his music hits. So instead of just being like, they, they literally do like the normal Royal Rumble thing, and it's like, number 10, and then he just comes running out. And I'm like, bitch, she says the number 10. Why wouldn't you just do that? Anyway, he's a terrible talent. <laughs> Um, which Apollo Cruz has just come in. He was Uha Nation um, on the Indies. What'd you make of him then? What do you make of him now? He's still around and like kind of finding his, some success for the first time. When he was Uha Nation in Dragon Gate, he was basically a GIF factory because 
everything the man does doesn't seem like it should be possible. A like, guy who's, I don't know, 250 pounds and does moonsaults? It doesn't make sense. And he can do shooting stars. He can do springboard backflips. He can do literally anything you can possibly conceive of he could do. So he would keep up with the smaller people in Dragon Gate, but also he just, like, bench-pressed them and throw them out of the arena. Like, it, it was crazy. He was like Brock Lesnar in that promotion. He's never figured it out in WWE. No. F- I, five years after this, he's still not anywhere. Isn't he the U.S. champion? Yeah, and he, I think he's going to join, like, this MVP stable. like The new nation? That's still nowhere, okay? No. It's just, it's not just that he hasn't figured out a personality, though that is true. Like, he he probably got thrown through NXT way too quickly oh, without he actually got called figuring up it out. Way before, they call him up a year after this when they uh, bring back the roster split, and he was nowhere near ready for that, and he totally flounders as a result. His in-ring style is very flashy, but he never really puts together matches that work because that's not really what his in-ring style had been. And he doesn't have any sort of character or ability to communicate it. He was a very, very, very unfinished product. And they just never even try to finish him. So this, and this match kind of reflects that. Like, he's super green, but you can see potential in him. But unfortunately, the match he has here is the exact same as the matches he's having now. Cruz gets to showcase his athleticism with leapfrogs and drop kicks. Dillinger gets in a little bit of offense, but Cruz makes a comeback, hits a gorilla press and a moonsault to get the pin in less than five minutes. You know, solid debut for the new guy. This was everything it should have been. I kind of would have loved if he had just gotten like the Baron Corbin treatment. Yeah. Like maybe that would have been a better version of Apollo Cruz. Like he's so unthinkably athletic, you can't last 20 seconds with him. You know what yeah. I mean? But instead, they just have him just do his spots endlessly, and it never goes anywhere. Uh, We go backstage where Commissioner William Regal announces the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic, which I believe culminates on the next um, TakeOver special. Did Joe and Balor win that one? Yes, I think they do win the first one, yes. And that was what led to Joe turning on Balor. I will argue up and down, left and right, backwards and forwards, that the most important thing that NXT did to build credibility with its fan base is make William Regal the general manager. Yeah. It he's pri- William Regal in NXT is probably the best general manager in the history of wrestling. He's been in this role forever. And he just never needs to leave it. Well, it's, cre- yeah. it's, it's credible. He is actually heavily involved in NXT. Yeah, he's the head scout of the yeah. company. But, like, he just carries with him this ability to cut promos and help other people with their promos as things are going. And he's never overexposed. On yeah. any given show, you'll only see him maybe One once. One minute, two minutes. Yeah. And, like, he can be, like, the angry baby face and be like, that's it. We're not doing this anymore. Now it's time for war games. <laughs> I'm remembering this brilliant promo from when he wrestled Cesaro where he was like, I know that if I was the man I used to be, I could take Cesaro, but I just don't know if I can anymore. But I'm going to give it everything I've got anyway. And then he went and they had an amazing match, but Cesaro killed him. Literally, William Regal might be the best promo in wrestling history, and I don't say that lightly. Hot, hot take. He's just so casually, definitively himself. 
And he just carries such gravitas in every word that he says. And like throughout history, he never got the opportunity to cut that many great promos. No. Um, one of the only great ones I can remember um, when he was defending Eugene against Triple yes. H. I will come at you with every ounce of vile venom in my body. And then him and Triple H fight and he proceeds to kick the shit out of them. Yes. Like, th- there were moments... That promo even gets game. to reference the fact that him and Triple H had been a tag team in WCW years before this. Yes. They should have made that into a bigger program, honestly. I don't think they expected it to work as well as it did. And tri- tri- there's a limit to Triple H's stroke. Not even he could get a feud with Regal. Although I think he was going to get a run with him when Regal was King of the Ring. I think that's where that was going. And then... Turned out Regal was on steroids and got suspended. That's a shame. That was. But, like, just every time William Regal is asked to speak, it always works. It always accomplishes exactly what you want it to accomplish, exactly the way you want it accomplished. And to a large extent, that's what's kept NXT moving this whole time. There were periods, like whole year-long periods, where no one in the company could cut a promo. Nobody. No, you wouldn't trust anyone in this company at this point other than Kevin Owens to speak five words in a row. So Regal had to carry it, and he would. Uh, then we see the Tough Enough finalists sitting in the front row. Oh, my God. The this was a disastrous, disastrous season of Tough Enough. After Andy they had and done other people, <laughs> they had done the brilliant season with Steve Austin a couple of years before this. Here they turned it like into American Idol, basically. And Hogan was the host initially, but then he got fired because the N word tape came out, so they had to replace right. him with Chris Jericho. Someday, maybe on the Patreon, maybe we'll find a way to just literally watch all the episodes of that first like remade tough enough and just like literally like live watch all of them that that's one of the funnest things i've ever seen in wrestling i loved it so much yeah you get the two guys it's down to the two and they're we're gonna see who's gonna get cut and they get in the ring with steve austin and they have to try to make their case why they should stay cut a promo on steve austin and make him believe in you it's such a great idea i mean that's what it turned out steve austin's like niche was it wasn't acting it was reality tv like he's a great host and this is i mean he's had a million shows that like odds are none of us have ever watched but they've been quite popular with their audience yeah why he's not the person who hosts like survivor or whatever i don't understand because he has universal appeal and he's very good at it yeah uh, next up, we've got Samoa Joe against Baron Corbin. I think I am on the record as like the world's biggest Baron Corbin hater, so this is where it's a little painful for me to admit that I actually loved Baron Corbin in NXT. Uh, as the world's number two Baron Corbin hater, I, due to the magic of Qush Scouts, you can Google online right now and find where I wrote down for the world to see that one day Baron Corbin would main event WrestleMania. And I here's, the, here's the thing. He probably will yeah. because Bruce Pritchard's going to make him the new JBL. At the time, I meant that as a compliment for him, <laughs> not as a depressing state of where the wrestling world will be in five years. But like at the time, he seemed like something special. The Lone Wolf character is a good idea. Making a character where 
all these other guys started on the indies and had to work their way up or like started from the bottom, had to work their way through the school, had to scratch and claw for everything. Yeah. But me, I'm a football player, man. I just had to call Vince <laughs> yeah. and say I want it in. And people hate me because I didn't have to do any of those things because I was too good to have to do any of those things. How's that fair? This and guy got paid right. to go to college. He got to go to college on a football scholarship. He played professional football in the NFL. He's not one of these indie geeks. He's a real athlete. And, like, you hate him, but a big part of the reason why you hate him is because he has a point. Yeah. Like, he is a next-level physical talent. And, like, and it's a long-term thing that we've been bitter about for ages, right? Like, the Goldbergs of the world always get to just wander right in Why? While everybody else, while the William Regals of the world just pine for that position. Well, that's the interesting thing is he initially started as a babyface with basically a Goldberg gimmick where he would squash people and the crowd would count how long the match went. And it would get to like, you know, the longest the matches ever were were like 50 seconds before he would hit the end of days. And that was very, very fun. Honestly, what an amazing, what an incredible finisher the end of days is to this day. I loathe Baron Corbin on my television, but I still pop for the fucking end of days. I love the end of days and I love his entrance music. I even love the deep six. Like there are elements to Baron Corbin that could be good. He's just not good. Did he look better before he shaved his head? I can't decide sometimes. He was, he was thinning so fast is the thing. Right at the beginning when he debuted, he looked better. But, as you said, it started thinning so fast after that that he had to shave it. By the end, it was pathetic. It was good that they made him start wearing a shirt when he wrestled. Yes. He also has... It's not really a weird body. I don't want to, like, body shame him like that. It's because he used to be, like, 300 pounds, and he lost all that weight. Yeah, he played in the NFL. He was, like, 320 pounds or something. So now he's, you know, a much healthier, more normal weight for a guy his size. And, yeah, he's never going to have six-pack abs because of that. Yeah, that's not his fault. But, yeah, it was smart. Like, his presentation wasn't always right on. But you just thought he was going to get there, and he just didn't. Baron Corbin now is maybe the worst thing I've ever seen on a wrestling screen. Like him so many pushes and he has never gotten over and he never will. It's just brutal to watch him. And it's not that he can't cut a promo. He's fine. And it's not that he can't wrestle a match. He's fine, but he's so aggressively fine. (laughs) But, and it's like, 20-minute promo, 10-minute match, seemingly every show. It's just brutal. It's bad times, man. Um, Samoa Joe debuted in NXT at the May TakeOver. He confronted Kevin Owens as Owens was beating up Sami Zayn. I That was a pretty awesome moment to see Samoa Joe in WWE. I had had... You guys know... That I was a TNA and Ring of Honor stan, 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 right? The idea of Samoa Joe and WWE was like a fever dream. Just like the things that he could do. If you could get him in the ring with Cena and you could just actually put that match on. The idea of young Joe against like Brock Lesnar is just like the most magnificent idea. And it just took so long to get him there that when he eventually did get there, it just wasn't he wasn't the same anymore. Not his fault. 
But also, when he shows up here, just the sight of him, the sight of him in a WWE ring was just awesome. So cool. Um, it's a physical match between two big men. Uh, Corbin gets the advantage when he catches Joe with a forearm smash as Joe is coming in for a suicide dive. Um, Graves makes a good point that there's a ton of tape on Joe that Corbin could have studied, but there's very little tape on Corbin because he just hasn't been wrestling for very long. So much harder for Joe to scout Corbin. That is a very good point. Uh, Joe makes a comeback. He you know, works through a series of submissions, the powerbomb, the Boston Crab, the STF, the crossface. I like that series. That was just the magic of Joe, especially yeah. in his youth. It's just like it was just a never ending series of offense. Like I'd never seen anybody wrestle like that before. Joe tries the muscle buster, but Corbin fights him off. Uh, suplex from Corbin to regain the advantage. Corbin tries for the end of days, but Joe slips out. Corbin blocks the coquina clutch. He hits a clothesline. He makes a cover. Joe kicks out and locks in the coquina clutch. Corbin passes out, and Joe gets the win. That was a good enough match. You know, not a classic, but yeah, Corbin looks decent in defeat here. Yeah, and the big idea is that they're charging up Joe because the next yeah. year is going to be all about Joe. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, this is going to be Joe's playhouse for all of 2016. As well it should be. Yeah. And, like, there was a thought that, like, this, like, Joe was never going to come to the main roster and he was just going to stay in NXT. I remember at the time there was, like, rampant speculation that he hadn't signed a deal with WWE. He'd signed a deal with NXT. So he was never going to get called up. He just belonged to them. That wound up being total bullshit, obviously. Yeah, there was but some that stuff was... like that. Also, he was allowed. To, they were letting him do outside dates at first. Yes. Like, he wasn't really an NXT talent at first. Yeah. They were just, he was just going to do his main roster stuff with them instead of TNA. And then they ended up liking him and keeping him around. And, you know, he had an okay run on the main roster. It didn't reach the heights it could have, but, you know, he was getting up there in age and had some injuries. There were a couple of moments where it felt real. Like, that Les- one... That Lesnar feud was awesome. Yeah, that one month where they charged him up against Lesnar, and you, you really felt like the first real threat to Lesnar in years. But now he's just, you know, the best color commentator in the world, so that's yeah. fine. Working out okay. Yeah. Uh, sitting in the front row, we see Ric Flair, Sergeant Slaughter... And Asuka, but she hasn't even debuted yet, so it's still Kana. And it's misspelled. I don't know if that's on purpose or what the case is, but they got two wins in there. How awesome is that? Just the idea of having, like, two incredible legends and this, like, new person who's coming in. And I guarantee, like, how many people knew who the fuck Kana was when she was on their screen right here? Like, me and, like, how many others? Yeah. Yeah. I was like, oh, she looks cool, whoever she is. Me and like I the, turned to the person next to me and was like, oh, who's that? Me and the other 30 Joshi nerds who immediately hit Twitter like, yeah. And then Naomi and Tamina of Team Bad, who are here to support their stablemate, Sasha. I mean, that's nice of them, right? Yeah, that's sweet. 
Um, Stephanie McMahon comes out. She says the Divas Revolution started NXT. I like that it's still the Divas Revolution at this point. It can't be women yet. At one point on this show, Corey Graves says Divas and then immediately corrects himself to wrestlers. Despicable. Which, I'm not sure if he was supposed to say Divas and was just, like, in the moment, like, fuck that, I'm not saying that. Or if he wasn't supposed to say it anymore and just couldn't stop himself. Uh, she then, like, introduces the Sasha versus Bailey match. They roll the video package. Um, so the story here, Bailey, of course, is part of the Four Horsewomen, but she's never been able to win the big one, never been the NXT Women's Champion, even though she's had tons of shots at the title. The rest of her friends have been called up to the main roster, but not Bailey. She's had shot after shot. This is her last chance to win the title. Just what a likable character that she's just like, yeah, you know, it kind of hurts to see all my friends up on the main roster and know that I'm not ready for that yet. But, you know, I still believe in myself. And she kept getting so close. Like, this yeah. is like a two-year-long storyline where she'd, like, she'd build herself all the way up, get all the way to challenging for the title, and just get knocked all the way to the bottom again. And just and her friends herself. all betrayed her. Yes. One by one, she, like, teams up with a new person, and they immediately betray her and join her enemies. It happened over and over and over. Very Sting-ish. Yes. Very st- Actually, her whole character is basically just new Sting. <laughs> right which down is, to the emo phase yeah which is totally fine but this character i once said that Paige was the biggest can't miss prospect that i had ever seen yeah i think number two would be velveteen dream and number three would be bailey yeah it just there what, hadn't who else appeals to young girls like this there would be case started to be so many more young girls at NXT shows that there ever had been before. And it was directly traceable to Bailey. This is Hulk Hogan for like girls under the age of 10, which is exactly the market. And we've drubbed this into your heads many times listening to this show. That's the market WWE needs to chase. That's what they're missing. She could have her own cartoon series. It's kind of stunning. She never did. She seems absolutely at the very least like, the female John Cena, like a person you can trust a person who you can put on your kids merch on your kids shirts and send them to school who they can be their favorite wrestler and they can watch all the time. And it's nice and they're friendly and they reinforce positive things. That's exactly the character that you need. It seemed impossible to fuck up. And it also seemed like the easiest thing to translate to the main roster is just the idea that like, this is a not genuinely nice, good person who's there for your kids and she's going to overcome the odds and they blew it blew it so hard. But by the time we get here, this is such a special moment because we kind of all know coming in that Bailey's going to win this match. Of course. Sasha's gone. She has to. Everybody's gone. There is no women's division left after they all go. No, it's basically Dana Brooks, Emma and Bailey are the last people left. They're good Thankfully, bring they're in, bringing in Asuka. Yeah, they're bringing in Asuka. They're bringing in Nia Jax. We have more people coming. But, like, so we all know that this is Bailey's moment. And we've all been waiting so long for her to have her moment that understanding that in advance actually makes this better. Because that's all I was looking forward to coming into this show. It's like, I want Bailey to have her moment. None of us had any idea how great that moment would be. <laughs> yeah. So Bailey's out first. You know, big pop for her. Love this entrance. 
love her music. Everything about her presentation is absolutely perfect. All the way down to the tassels and the ponytail yeah. slung to the side. Like, everything about her is uncool but adorable. <laughs> and then an awesome entrance for Sasha as she rolls into the arena with a black Escalade with, you know, security guards and all black. Like, she is the fucking boss. Now we have to talk about the Sasha part of this. Because they blew that, too. Oh, God. There was a moment, probably about nine months from here, where Sasha Banks is the most over person in wrestling. Like, during the Charlotte-Sasha feud, Sasha's the star. Sasha's a next-level star. Sasha's on, like... kicked off the new era of Raw with Sasha winning the women's title. And people, like, were crying in the audience. It mattered. And she was the face of this. And then what happened? Oh, they beat her in her hometown in that Hell in a Cell match. And then they beat her again. And again. And again. And because she was feuding with Charlotte, she was never allowed to win on pay-per-view. No. So she would win on pay-per-view and immediately drop it back to no. Charlotte. And then do you, remember, do you remember how Charlotte's pay-per-view streak ended? How did it end, Steve? She lost a fatal four-way match where she didn't get pinned. After Bailey had beaten her for the title on Raw, because we assumed... Oh, well, Charlotte can't lose on pay-per-view because they're doing this pay-per-view streak. So they screwed up so many moments, like, for this Charlotte pay-per-view streak that they never paid off. Yep. And, yeah. And that's where we are now, boys and girls. The only star left in the women's division is Charlotte. Charlotte has killed everyone else. She's just, like, eater of worlds. So, like, this moment... Where we're going to talk about how special it is between Bailey and Sasha, and how they single-handedly add credibility to this women's revolution. Just remember that, because they both get fed into the Charlotte machine and die. <sighs> All cheers for Bailey, a mix of cheers and boos for Sasha, dueling. Let's go Sasha, let's go Bailey. Chance. Uh, Bailey starts fast. She hits a springboard elbow drop while Sasha is in the tree of woe. There's a Sasha's Ratchet chant, which is quite despicable. Yeah, that's not great. That's That's fucked up. Wasn't great then, when that was still a fairly new phrase-ish, sort of? Definitely not good now. They struggle over a superplex. Sasha ends up kicking Bailey's knee out from under her, and Bailey tumbles down to the floor. Sasha is in control for the next few minutes and she just works some vicious holds. Like this is what was so good about these women's matches was how like simple and old school and psychological they were just lots of holds, lots of body part work, just straight fundamental wrestling. And this is the Sarah Del Rey influence because Sarah Del Rey made most of her money in the business wrestling men. And she was always very credible doing that. And this is exactly why. This was that style. How do you portray yourself as credible when you're five foot two and a hundred pounds? You viciously yeah. destroy people on the mat. When you get them down, they're all the same size on the mat. You just use leverage and hurt them. And that's why it never felt weird that Sasha would win wrestling matches, even though she's literally like the size she's of a so two. Yeah. Because she would just be so 
vicious when she got you in something and it would just work and like yeah that's that's a trait that all of the women who came out of nxt have and that's a trait that the people who didn't come out of nxt like your i don't know like your natalia's for example never did have and you can that's why you can tell the difference the difference between the style of the women that you think of as like good and the ones that are bad is that influence sarah del rey's influence Sasha drapes Bailey on the ropes and hits a double stomp to the gut. Just a brutal, brutal move. Jesus. Like, I know she doesn't weigh that much, but still, if a baby did that to you, you wouldn't be walking right. Bailey makes a comeback. Sasha cuts her off by wrenching her arm across the ropes. Um, Bailey is recovering from a broken hand, and Sasha rips the brace off her hand. She then puts her hand in the steps and crushes it by kicking the steps into her hand. I love that move. Like, there's zero risk to it, but it seems like it would hurt like hell. Yeah, those are the things in wrestling that I I really wish people would spend more time on, is the stuff that doesn't actually hurt you, but looks awesome, rather than the stuff that definitely does hurt you that doesn't look that great. Uh, The ref tries to stop Sasha from going outside, so she does a somersault plancha over him onto Bailey. That's the first time in this match where I realized it was something special. And I think the crowd did, too. The reaction this gets is like if The Undertaker did it. Yeah. Like, the crowd loses its shit. Because, I don't know, Steve, have you ever seen anything like that in a women's match before? Nope. Not even fucking close. Like, not even in Joshi, where you are seeing, like, fucking somersault planches and shit. Like, it's just very cool. Sasha tries some kind of springboard move, but Bailey manages to throw her down to the floor. Bailey makes a comeback. Sasha shuts it down with the bank statement. Uh, Bailey crawls to the ropes, but Sasha stomps on her hand. Love that. Just the I just the visual of her reaching out her hand and Sasha just blindly stomping for it is just like nope 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 times it's yeah. so good. Bailey just, ma- manages to roll the hold over into a cross face, but Sasha gets her foot on the ropes. Bailey hits the Bailey to belly, but Sasha kicks at it too. Bailey sets Sasha up on the top rope, tries for a Frankensteiner, but she slips and just crashes and burns. I don't think that was part of the plan. I think Sasha was supposed to have like shoved her, but it didn't come across super well like that. Uh, Sasha comes off the top rope with a double knee drop, but that only gets two. Bailey hits a reverse Frankensteiner off the top rope, and then the Bailey to belly to get the pin. What a match. That last moment, let me paint you a word picture here, okay? Because they get up and they're jostling on the top rope. Previously, I think the biggest spot any in like female WWE wrestling history was like, I don't know, maybe the time that like Natalia splashed somebody through a table. Like it's not the high spots were not something that was done in women's wrestling. So I you generally have absolutely no idea what's going to happen. And she does the poison rana. She climbs up there and she just spikes Sasha Perfect. so perfectly. Like, if you did this a hundred times, you could never hit it that right. She gets up, 
the very first thing she does is she fixes her ponytail because it's come loose. Like, I mean, fucking, that's like her pulling down the strap. That's her, like, it's time for business. <laughs> Runs over, grabs her, hits her. I'm sure in that moment, so much energy is running through her because this is such a special moment for her. Yeah. That, like, she picks up Sasha and, like, literally, like, plants her on the back of her head. She goes so hard with the belly to belly. And she pins her. And the sound of everyone counting to three is some of the biggest I've ever heard. Just like an I, explosion. Everyone was so ready for this moment. And I think a lot of us were so afraid it wasn't going to go the way it should go. And yeah. instead. Because, you know, Sasha sticks around for another takeover match after this. So they could have been like, oh, Bailey's going to get one last shot. And like that would have been too much because this was the moment. And instead, just that catharsis in the moment of like, it's finally Bailey's time. They finally paid this off. And then the moment immediately after where the other four horsewomen come down to the ring and they all hug together because they're going to launch a new generation. It's as feel good a moment as feel good moments get. Yeah, uh, very much like a Daniel Bryan WrestleMania 30 moment. And I, I can't undersell this. This was at that time probably the best women's wrestling match in the history of North American wrestling. I mean, has anything beaten it since then? I don't, I don't think it has. Um, Mm. I have a different opinion of some of those Sasha Charlotte matches than maybe some other people do. Um, It also may not be the best. I know like Aoka Hamada and Sarah Del Rey had some absolute fucking barn burners in shimmer, but like in terms of being important, this is probably the most important American women's wrestling match of all time. Because if this hadn't delivered the way it did, I'm not sure Vince is sold the way that he is. Like, they're already doing the women's revolution. How much of that is just to shut up people who have been demanding it? Yeah. Because they had been. Especially since WrestleMania. And, but with this, there's just something here. And they never stop going away from it. They're obsessed with the idea of Bailey and Sasha together. They've been together for five years now. And it's because of this match. They will be eternally linked together as the two people who put on basically like a like proof. They, they, they created the evidence that women's wrestling could not only be a main event, but could steal the show on a pay-per-view, which it maybe had never done before. Great moment all around. Oh, so good. Dude, this match is every bit as good as people say it is. This really should have closed the show. That's the thing, too, is that, like, not anything against what we're about to talk about, Finn Balor and Kevin Owens, but they get buried by following this. Yeah. And that's I don't think that's anything that Kevin Owens and Finn Balor thought might happen when they came to work that day, is that they wouldn't be able to follow the women's match. But fuck me, they didn't. <laughs> We see Seth Rollins sitting in the front row. Yeah, funny thing that, huh? Next to his white supremacist girlfriend at the time. Ooh. Yeah, that whole bet kettle of fish. They replay um, Triple H announcing that NXT will be touring the UK this December and that uh, the next takeover, not the next takeover special, but the takeover special in December uh, will be in London. 
it was impossible for me to hear that and not immediately think of what the next five years would mean for UK wrestling. Yeah. Basically, he was announcing, yeah, we noticed that the UK is a thing, so we're going to go steal all their fucking talent and bury them, and then they're all going to turn out to be pedophiles and sex pests. <laughs> Man, 2020. What a time. <laughs> uh, video package for Owens versus Balor. And it's time... For the match the world has come to see for the NXT World Champ, not really a World Championship, for the NXT Championship, it's Finn well, it Balor. Has been defended overseas at this point. Like it got defended in Japan. It, it did change hands in Japan. That there is true. There you go. It's Finn Balor versus Kevin Owens in a ladder match. Um, they do the tracking shot with the little thumping baseline following Owens as he's making his walk to the ring backstage. NXT does all the little touches right. Every little thing. Like, they don't have the money that the main roster does. You can tell. But, like, whoever's producing this stuff, and I don't know whether it's, like, Triple H individually, who was just like, hey, you know that moment I really loved is when Shawn Michaels walked to the ring at Survivor <gasps> Series 1997. Hey, I was there. Yeah, see? Yeah, let's just do that thing that me and Shawn did. That was pretty cool. <laughs> but it's literally... It's not just wish fulfillment in delivering us these indie guys. And it's not just wish fulfillment in that it's the kind of promotion we've been waiting for. But I swear to God, it's like they took a checklist of all the things in wrestling that I had been missing and just turned them into a promotion. Uh, Balor out second. He's in his demon persona. The first time he got a shot at Owens, he didn't bring the demon out and he lost. So when he got his rematch in Japan... You bet he brought out the demon, and he won that time, and you know he's going to use the demon again here. Is this where they start to do the talking about, like, there is a promo somewhere around this time where he's like, I'm using the demon too much. I'm worried. I feel like I'm going to lose myself. Yeah, it was a very intriguing storyline they were building, and I think it was somebody had taken out Kenta, and it was a mystery who it was. And I think it was going to turn out it was... Finn because he lost control of the demon. Yes. But then it turned out Kenta like re-injured himself and it took him forever to come back. So they just kind of dropped it. But they yeah. built so much to that Finn versus Kenta match that I wanted so bad and never got. I mean, yeah, the demon is clearly something WWE has never quite figured out. Like Clearly Vince just doesn't get it, doesn't like it. Somebody said the words the Great Muda in a meeting once, and I guarantee you Vince was like, the Great what now? Because that's the idea. That's what the Great Muda was. It was... Now, they never established in New Japan that Kaijimuto and the Great Muda were the same person. It was understood that that was the case. And if you ever crossed Kaijimuto, suddenly the Great Muda would show up and murder you. <laughs> but it was never established they were the same person this way. But that's what we're doing here. He has a side of his personality that when it comes out, it's indestructible. The idea that down the road you could have yeah. the demon face Brock Lesnar and be credible because the demon never loses is something you could have built to. Oh, yeah, and the idea that you know he's going to the demon too much and he's going to start to lose control of it and the demon could take over, that's really interesting. And that was supposed to be the crux of that Bray Wyatt feud. It's like, I'm going to turn you back into the demon because I can take control of you then. But then that went nowhere. It was probably for the best that we didn't have to suffer through Bray Wyatt as Sister Abigail. Oh, my 
my god, that's what was gonna happen. I forgot. Gross. Yeah. Bad. And then Bray got Bray got mono. Oh, that was some clutch mono. <laughs> and he gave it to Roman. Anyone but you, Roman. Anyone but you, Roman. <laughs> he said as he sipped Roman's drink and handed it back to him. Um. Uh, Owen starts in control. He hits a big senton. Balor hits the double stomp, and Owens rolls out to the floor. Owens recovers to hit a cannonball in the corner. Uh, they fight out to the floor and then into the crowd. Owens tries for a powerbomb on the concrete, but Finn ends up backdropping him over the barricade. Finn jumps off the barricade, but Owens catches him out of the air, runs him into the barricade, and then throws him. Just chucks him over the announce table. That looks so cool. Yeah. Owens picks up the ladder, but this has given Finn enough time to recover that he uh, stands up, like runs, jumps, runs across the announce table, and jumps off it with a drop kick. Do you think that the demon's wrestling style was different enough from Finn's? No, I never noticed any difference. Yeah, that always bothered me, too. It did kind of seem like he should have a different moveset as the demon, right? Because Muda's deal is that when he was Kaijimuto, he was a technician. He was athletic. He would do flips, everything, the good stuff. When he was Muda, he was trying to mutilate your face. Yeah. (laughs) He was trying to scratch your face off with a spike. Like, that's that's what that was. Yeah, I think that's probably a legitimate criticism. The the demon was never, like, vicious enough or high impact enough. It just kind of felt like Finn Balor. Yeah, I agree. Um, in the ring, Owens hits Finn with a body block. He sets him up on a ladder and hits a senton. Uh, he drapes Finn up against a ladder in the corner. He tries for a cannonball, but Finn moves and Owens hits the ladder. Finn climbs the ladder. Owen power bombs him off. Owens climbs. Finn dumps him. They go out to the floor. Um, uh, Owens tries for the pop-up powerbomb, like, into the ring apron. Balor slips out, gets him with a kick to the head. Balor tries to stomp. Owens moves. He powerbombs Balor into the ring apron. Brutal move. That never stops looking totally fucking awesome. It doesn't seem like there's any, like, way for that not to hurt. And, like... I don't even know if it's better to take it on like the small of your back or at the top of the back like he's doing here. Because I've seen it on the small of the back before, but he's literally spiking guys like up by their neck. And I'm like, man, that seems dangerous. Yeah. Where there's wooden planks all around the edge of the ring here to give it structure. Fuck. Yeah. Uh, they both make it back in the ring. They climb. Owens pushes Balor off the ladder. Owens hits a super kick. He climbs again. Finn cuts him off. Owens tries for a superplex, like onto another ladder that's wedged between the ladder and the ring ropes. Uh, Balor slams Owens' head into the ladder. Owens falls off, hits the ladder. Balor is uncontested, but the la- the belt is not within his reach. Owens recovers. They fight on the ladder again. Balor kicks him off. He then, from the very top of the ladder, hits Owens with a double stomp. I don't know what the trick to that is. 
is there one? <laughs> you're, you're, you're backwards. You're trying not. How do you? Yeah, I don't understand how you're not just hitting them with all of your weight in the stomach when you do this. The idea is that, like, since you're the, the trick back, is not caring, I guess. Like, you don't plant. This yeah. is the difference between what Finn Balor does and what Low Key does. Like, Low Key, like, stamps down as he hits you, whereas Finn just puts his feet on your chest as he falls backwards. Yeah, That's the difference. Just kind of roll. Like, it's still, I'm sure it doesn't feel great, but he just kind of rolls. Yeah. And, like, Spike Dudley used to do this where he'd come down with his full weight, but who gave a shit because he only weighed 80 pounds? <laughs> yeah. But, like, when Finn does it, yeah, he's already falling backwards. So he's not really hitting you with his weight. If anything, it's more dangerous to your feet because, like, he's hitting all of his weight is going straight back once he hits the ground. <sighs> Balor climbs the ladder, pulls down the title. He retains a, a good match. It wasn't amazing. I wouldn't rank this as, like, one of the best ladder matches I've seen. They were smart and they didn't do anything too dangerous here yeah again if this weren't the main event i would think of it a lot better it i don't know that they set out to really steal the show or anything like that but they had absolutely no chance after the bailey sasha match no and it didn't need to go 22 minutes it really no, did. it was definitely a little long. There was this this drag. There were a few times I was like, "Oh, this is the this is when he's going to do the double stomp off the line." No, it wasn't. Yeah, because that's the only thing about this match I remembered. And that's a wrap on NXT Takeover Brooklyn. Um, I mean, it wasn't a perfect show in the sense that most of these matches were pretty forgettable, but. It's a great show just in the sense that every match accomplished what it was going out to do, I think. Absolutely. I. It was such a wonderful trip down memory lane. It really was. And especially, it was a wonderful to remember just a less cynical time. Like, NXT now certainly, certainly isn't what it was then. But it will always, that brand will always have a certain appeal because of the, like, the credibility it built up with its fan base here. And maybe that's part of the reason why we always go back to Raw and why we don't care about SmackDown is because if you have enough great memories, you'll just always give something a second chance. I'll always tune back into NXT if I hear like a big cool thing is happening. That's not necessarily true for like 205 Live, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, just a tribute to how good this show, this brand, this promotion whatever you want to call it was at this point like they really were building stars now we know you know these really nobody on the show ends up becoming the star it feels like they should have on the main roster it turns out okay for most of them they made a ton of money they got to work main events i'm sure they're just fine but this did not become the revolution i think we were hoping it was going to be yes we thought they genuinely thought that, man, in like a, three years, the whole company is just going to be flooded with such incredible talent that they couldn't possibly ruin them. That was inexplicably naive of us to believe. Yeah. But it still felt really wonderful to believe it. Vince McMahon's ability to ruin things, unparalleled. But there is, there will always be, until I know definitively that it won't be, this part of me in the back of my head that says... When Vince McMahon dies, if Triple H takes over, we've seen it work. 
So now, and yeah. basically ever since this time, there's just been this like clock ticking. Like someday well, yeah. we might get a version of the main roster that feels like this. Maybe someday. <laughs> We're all just waiting for Triple H to take over. It's our it's our last hope. And we're all such fucking marks, because Bruce Pritchard's going to get the whole company. Of course he is. <sighs> so yeah, that is a wrap on NXT TakeOver Brooklyn. Very happy we finally covered this. I feel like we've been talking about doing it for a while. Oh, real quick before we go out, is there anything that you saw live that really stood out that maybe doesn't translate? Not, not really. I feel like everything made it on the show. I mean, the Triple H moment was the Triple H thing was really cool. So he came out um, before the show started. You know, he came out to his music, got a huge pop. We were all bowing down to the king and he did a promo like, you know, thanking the fans and all that. He did the, you know, are you ready? And then he's like, OK, guys, so. I've got this idea and everybody back there thinks it's crazy and it's never going to work, but I want to try it. We're going to start the show and the lights are going to be off and I need you guys to be quiet like you're in church, like total silence. And I'm going to do a thing and then we're going to turn the lights on and you're going to go crazy and it's going to be a great moment. You know, can you do that with me? And like, I'd say 99% of the people in the crowd went along with it, but like the 1% did kind of ruin it. Chris Benoit! That motherfucker. <laughs> Steve personally found him in the parking lot after the show. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then taking the subway back to Penn Station, um, the train is loaded with wrestling fans. I guess I should also point out the Blue Pants Rocks and Blue Pants City chants continued throughout the show and like as we were walking out of the arena, everyone was still chanting it. And then on the subway back to Penn Station, people were still chanting Blue Pants Rocks. Boy, they probably should have signed her, huh? It's really nuts that they didn't, but I mean, even in NXT, the ultimate sin is getting over when they don't want you to. That's There's only one original sin in WWE, and it's changing the plan. <laughs> So yeah, I think everything else pretty much made it on. I'm not no, nothing else like dark segment wise is popping out to me. Got it. Say so one day I'll have my perspective about something similar because we will obviously cover all in at some point. Like yeah. it's probably the most recent wrestling event that we will cover because it's probably the last really important yes. wrestling show that well, happened. Yeah, I mean some of the other like AEW stuff has been important since then. Um, even if obviously they've been. Stuck, stuck in a you know coronavirus-induced rut for a few months here. Yeah, but there's just something special about going to a show that really matters. In like you feel like history is being created around you. Doesn't happen very often, but you got to experience it here, and I got to experience it there. Yeah, good time. Hell yeah. Next week we're gonna have a less good time as we're gonna cover. WCW Bash at the Beach 1999. Oh. We have done almost every Bash at the Beach. This is, I think there's maybe two left we haven't done. So here's one of them. This is from, 
what I would say is like mid-apocalypse WCW. Like, we stopped um, doing Bash at the Beaches for a reason, guys. Yeah, I mean, this is when it hasn't quite totally collapsed, but they're well on their way to the Armageddon that's coming the next year. Tell the people what they'll get, Steve. <laughs> Uh, are you excited for the world title changing hands in a tag match? Oh, you know that I am. <laughs> what about David Flair versus Dean Malenko? What the fuck? <laughs> How about a sub-main event of Roddy Piper versus Buff Bagwell in a boxing match? I, why does Roddy Piper love boxing Roddy so much? Roddy Piper loves boxing. <laughs> Motherfucker loves to box. Hey, he uh, wants box Mr. T. He's credible. I think there's like one good match on this show that's like Benoit and Saturn against the Jersey Triad. That sounds like it would be good. Oh, boy. This is going to be one of those shows. Oh, it's a mess. Like, I mean, you watch it and you can pretty much understand why Eric Bischoff got fired like a month later. Yeah, there's a reason why we did NXT Brooklyn here in the middle, because this whole summer has just been like crap-ass show after crap-ass show. Yeah. So we wanted something good before we just jumped right back in. <sighs> so yeah, all that and more next time on the Lawcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next week.